All right, well, good morning, beloved. Great to see all of you here today, worshiping with you this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We are in Colossians chapter 1 as we continue in our verse-by-verse study through this great little book of Colossians. And uh, this morning, our focus is going to be in verses 12 through 14. Now, if you were with us last week, we, we started covering the section, this section referred to as Paul's prayer. It started back in verse 9. And so in order to have the full context for us in mind this morning, um, I'm going to start reading in verse 9, and I'll read right through to verse 14. So Colossians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 9. And here now is the word of the living and true God. Paul writes, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Indeed, this is a wonderful passage and and is leading us into really holy ground as we get ready to enter some incredible verses in the book of Colossians in this first chapter is just amazing. Um, As I mentioned last week, Paul's prayer for the Colossian church can essentially be broken up into two elements or two parts. Uh, The first part of the prayer, verses 9 through 11, is Paul's petition. And we looked at that last week. And so we're entering now into the second part, verses 12 through 14, which I'll call Paul's thanksgiving. The first half is to request something on behalf of the church, and the second half is to thank God for something. Now, having already gone through 9 through 11, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14, and as I said, the focus is on thanking God for what he has already done, and specifically, what God has done when he saved us. In fact, if you have been born again, This is your story, and this is my story. As Paul reveals in really further details for us the glories of the gospel. Now, as we continue in Paul's prayer, I do want to remind you that this should also be a pattern in our own life as well. This is a prayer that you can pattern your prayers after And when we pray, it teaches us that our prayers should consist of both petition and praise. 
I know in my own prayer life, I can sometimes lean a little heavy on the petition side, um, while the praise side maybe sometimes just gets you know, put in there at the end. And But the examples we have in Scripture demonstrate there should be a, a healthy balance of both petition and praise. And just to illustrate that to you before we begin, turn back a page to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 in your Bibles, and and notice Paul's instruction to the church in Philippi. He tells them to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there you have a definition of prayer. Prayer is supplication which is petition with thanksgiving. There it is. Prayer is both petitioning God and thanking God. And we see this again in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And so... Those two terms, supplication and thanksgiving, really become the two main ingredients that are always present in any biblical pattern of prayer. Now, last week we looked at Paul's petition. And so today we are looking at, as Paul gives thanks in verses 12 through 14. And can I just say before we begin that those of us who are in Christ, we always have so much to be thankful for in fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 17 through 18 says the believers that we are to pray without ceasing, and in everything we are to give thanks. In everything. And of all the things that we might be thankful for, and there are many, the primary point of thanksgiving is our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary to that. So how often do you praise and thank God for what He's done in your life? I want you to think about that as we look at our verses today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, Paul says, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And that's what it is, isn't it? He's talking about salvation. The gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, I mean... How could we even rightly describe the thanks that is due Him? And in Paul's great doxology in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, he says towards the end of the chapter, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the focal point of our thanksgiving is on the person and work of Christ. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to being thankful, you can be thankful for a lot of things, but most importantly, we are thankful for our salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's attitude as we now come and look at our verses in Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14, as Paul 
essentially sums up the doctrine of salvation or of justification as we read this morning in Romans 5. And he uses uh, three great truths. It's as if Paul is praying, Father, I have petitioned you on, on behalf of the Colossians, these, these great Christians, and now I want to thank you for these three wonderful truths regarding their salvation. And these three great realities of your salvation and of mine are outlined in the back of your bulletin notes. And they are number one, your inheritance. Number two, your deliverance. Number three, your transference. And these three great truths make up Paul's thanksgiving to God. So let's begin with number one in our inheritance. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Our inheritance. Notice what it says in verse 12. Paul writes, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And here we see the Apostle Paul is giving thanks first to God the Father. Because God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now this is an incredibly rich verse that needs to be unpacked. So first let's just start with the Father. Why is he thanking the Father? Well, for starters, Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us that it was the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It was the Father, Ephesians 1 4, which says, who chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. It was the Father who in love, verse 5, predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And so when we're talking about our salvation, Paul starts by giving thanks to the Father. And, you know, I'm glad he uses the term father here because um, this really emphasizes the personal, uh, relational aspect of our union with God. Before our salvations, we were enemies of God. And guess what? God was our judge. God was our judge. Before our salvation, we stood condemned before Him having violated His holy and just laws. But when through the grace of God we placed our faith in Christ Jesus, God ceased to be our sentencing judge and became our glorious heavenly Father. And not only has God adopted us as His sons, but He has also qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Simply amazing. Now that word for qualified is a very important word. It is used in only one other place in all of Scripture. And it means exactly what it says uh, to qualify someone. It's the idea of authorizing someone. It's not talking about our practice. It's talking about our position in Christ Jesus. 
in the Godhead. Now let me ask you something. On what basis am I qualified by? On the basis of my work? Or on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ? You see, before God saved us, we were totally unqualified, weren't we? And let me show you this quickly. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment as there we can find several examples. And let me show you just how unqualified we were just in case your pride as you thinking that you were a, a pretty good person before God saved you. Um, there's a lot of places that we could go to, but here in Ephesians we can kind of narrow in on a few, one right after another. And really... These verses describe just how helpless we were in the condition that we were in. Notice how in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 begins when it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, beloved, that's what it is to be disqualified. We were by nature children of wrath. Spiritually, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins walking according to the course of this world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. By nature, we were children of wrath, even as the wrath. And so, that's what it is to be disqualified. God looks over you and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Look now at Ephesians 2.12. And here, again, we get a description of the unconverted person, the pagan or the Gentile. In uh, verse 11, they're referred to as Gentiles or pagans. They are the uncircumcision. And then in verse 12, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That qualifies you for hell and nothing more. Now let me just sum up verse 12 for you. As this is the actual state of every man and woman who is unqualified. This is the result of man's fallenness. This is the result of our sin nature that we inherited from the first Adam. Notice first of all, we are Christless. Separate, separated from Christ. No hope of salvation. Next, stateless. We were alienated from Israel, who had the covenants and the promises. Next, we were covenantless, strangers to the covenants and promises. And then he adds hopeless, having no hope. And he ends the verse godless, without God in the world. And that, beloved, is what it means to be unqualified, utterly and completely unqualified. And then, 
to further seek this condition, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And there, uh, you will find in the middle of verse 17 that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Verse 19, and they having becoming calloused have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And this defines every one of us apart from God's salvation. Verse 17 talks about walking in the futility of your mind. That word futility means the emptiness, the vanity, the uselessness of your own self-centered thoughts. And then it's explained to us in verse 18. We were darkened in our understanding. We were excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts, and that speaks of your spiritual condition. And then verse 19, you even have the idea of a reprobate mind that has been um, been completely given over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And the idea there is really selfishness as you care for nobody except for yourself. And so this was who we were. This is how everyone is. Christless, stateless, covenantless, hopeless, godless, our minds were given over to fertility. Our understanding was darkened. We were cut off from the life of God. We were ignorant and hard-hearted, calloused to truth, immoral and impure, shameless and selfish. That is the state we are in. That is our fallen condition. And so, back to Colossians 1.12 to appreciate the grace of God. It is no wonder why Paul then says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who, seeing us in this unqualified condition, has qualified us. Has qualified us. How did he do that? Well, we're back to that great truth of the gospel we read this morning called justification. It's when God declares us righteous by um, imputing his own righteousness or the perfection of Christ unto us and because he qualified us in that way we have been given the privilege verse 12 says of sharing in the inheritance of the saints in light we have literally become partakers which means to re receive something by a portion or a lot it means we have each received our own personal individual allotment or portion of the total inheritance. God, by His grace, has qualified the unqualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. Isn't that great? Now, what is this inheritance? Well, for starters, it's an Old Testament term. Uh, likely, Paul's thinking of the Exodus account. He might be alluding to the portioning of Israel's inheritance of the promised land, Canaan. And just as the Israelites individually were to receive their inheritance through the tribes of the promised land, so also individually do we receive each 
our own portion of the divine inheritance. And while Paul might be thinking back about that, it's important to point out that Paul is speaking about an inheritance far greater here in scope. In fact, Peter calls our inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and will not fade away. You'll recall that from 1 Peter chapter 1. This is not an earthly inheritance. It is an, an eternal inheritance. Now, let's look at the end of verse 12 and see if we can sort of pull it all together. Paul says, we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, from that last line there in verse 12, Paul further defines our inheritance as the saints in light. And who are the saints? Well, that word there refers to those who have been separated from the world, the saints. And they have been set apart unto Christ. So whatever this inheritance is, it belongs to a certain group of people. So we can say then these are true believers. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, those who are greedy, or drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And Galatians 5.21 adds to that, things like these I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God that is for those whom God has qualified to share in the inheritance of those who walk in the light of Jesus Christ. And throughout the scriptures, we always see that those who are in the light, that it becomes a sort of marker of truth and purity. And of course, it was Jesus who said in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In fact, in his defense before King Agrippa, the apostle Paul spoke of the Lord's commissioning him to preach to the Gentiles. And the Lord told Paul in Acts 26, 18, that he was sending him to, quote, open their eyes, the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And there's the key. When a man or woman puts their faith in Jesus Christ, he then receives the inheritance and becomes a saint in light. It is only by the power and the grace of God, for it is only Jesus Christ who can take the unqualified and make them qualified and share in the inheritance of the saints. And what can you do? All you can do is believe. Believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John 20, 31. Believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and you will receive by His grace the inheritance of the saints. And so what is this actual inheritance? Well, in a phrase, it is where Christ is. It is Christ. Our inheritance is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It is eternal joy eternal pleasure, eternal worship, eternal service, 
eternal bliss, eternal perfection, eternal righteousness. It is all those wonderful things and more. So beloved, let me remind you that the next time you're not feeling incredibly grateful for your salvation and the troubles of this world are just sort of dragging you down, sit down, open your Bible, and turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, and remind yourself to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you when you were unqualified, when you were yet a sinner. Christ died for you so that you could share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so then all we are then able to say is thank God. Thank God for his mercy. So we go from point number one in our inheritance to point number two in our deliverance. You got to thank God for your deliverance. Thank God for your deliverance. And Paul's thanks just continues in verse 13. As he writes, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness. And let's just deal with that. You'll notice that verse 13 starts with the word for, and, and this is because Paul's introducing an explanation of the verse that we just read before, verse 12. Why should we give thanks to God the Father? For he delivered us. He delivered us. Now, this word delivered literally means to rescue. In fact, you might have that translation. It also means to draw to oneself. To draw to oneself. And that's exactly what God the Father did. He actually drew us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And an important thing to note here is that word rescued is in the aorist tense, which means that it is a singular event which has already happened, and it happened in the past. So when God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, this then would be referring to the new birth. When you were born again. Now, Yes, God the Father draws us, and that may be over a period of time. But just like when you were born and your mother had labor pains for a period of time, and she was having the contractions, eventually there was a moment, a point in time, in which you were born, that you were delivered in this case from your mother's womb. We are not gradually, in this sense, delivered from the domain of darkness. You are either in the domain or you are out of it when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We were instantly delivered from it. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17 says it this way in clearer terms for us. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's what it means to be born again. And what that means is, is it doesn't matter if you were brought up in the church or not. 
Until you have been born again, you still are in need of being delivered from the domain of darkness. And if you want to know what is wrong with the world today, it's right there. The world is in the domain of darkness. And it's no wonder, 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. The entire world system, which is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-truth, anti-marriage, anti-family, anti-life, anti-church, anti-everything that is good and holy. And you and I were once a part of this system. In fact, we were held in chains of darkness. We were held captive by sin and by the devil until he rescued us, until he delivered us from the domain of darkness. And it was at that moment of our conversion that there was a dramatic, divine intervention where God broke off those chains and it is as though he laid hold of us and lifted us up and taken us out of the darkness. God is a rescuing God. He is a deliverer. And it is in this context that we have been rescued, delivered from the domain of darkness. Every single one of us who are in Christ have been delivered from. And we are no longer in any fear of that past power. For Jesus forever has shattered Satan's power through his death and resurrection on the cross and from the dead. We no longer need to fear that power for as 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Through his death, Jesus crushed Satan and delivered us once and for all from the domain of darkness. So that was point number two, and we should thank God every day, not only for our inheritance, but for our deliverance as well. That brings us to point number three. And we can also thank God for our transference. Our transference. And that's what we see next as the Apostle Paul continues in this litany of thanksgiving. Notice the end of verse 13. He says, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now let's just stop right there for a moment. As this word transferred in the original language means to be moved from one location to another location. And the word means to remove or to carry away. And again, that's what God did. He has removed us from the domain of, de- of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And this word transferred is really an interesting word as it was used in the ancient world to describe a powerful king who would go to battle and defeat another country. And they would take all the remaining soldier and townsmen and transferred them to the king's homeland, making them slaves or servants of the king. And that's the picture here as God has invaded human history in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And King Jesus came on a rescue mission to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So that we're not just sort of suspended during our 
Christian life here in no man's land, waiting to go to heaven. No, right now, the moment that you were converted, you are taken captive by God and transferred into the kingdom of His Son to become His slaves. No longer are you slaves to sin, but Romans 6.22 says, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, every kingdom has a what? King, right? King. And the moment you entered into the kingdom of God and you went through the narrow gate under the sovereignty of the supreme rule, the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, have you ever wondered when it was that you were saved? I've been asked that quite a few times. You know, I don't really know exactly the moment that I was saved. And the answer to the question of when was I saved was when you bowed the knee to the king of the kingdom of God. There it is. If you're not sure of that exact hour and date and time, I'm not sure exactly when I was saved. It was when you bent the knee to the king of kings and lord of lords. And he had total control over your life now look at verse 13 again and it says and transferred us to the kingdom now what do you think of when you see that term the kingdom do you ever think about that at all um some people say it's this is referring to um the kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth where christ will rule in his eternal kingdom and there's certainly uh, an aspect of, of that um, which is true. But is that what he's talking about right here? When we're thinking about the kingdom, it can also be said that that coming future kingdom that is coming in this world, that we can say also right now, there's a future kingdom. Yes, we understand that. But it is not Jesus ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of God the Father? Is he not the King of Kings, Lord of Lords right now? So, there is certainly the truth that, that the kingdom is, is here and now in some sense. I personally believe in a, a literal uh, thousand year millennial reign of Jesus Christ on this earth sitting on the throne of David established in the in the new Jerusalem, whether that will be Jerusalem or not, I, I don't know all the details, but this is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 37, Daniel 7, Isaiah 9. There is coming, no matter your eschatology, a kingdom on earth, a, a restored earth, a kingdom that will never end. But th there's more here than that, I think, that, the kingdom of His beloved Son is, is more than just sort of in the future sense. And it's more than just a general rule of God as He is ruling and reigning even now on His throne. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And so... In one sense, there is a spiritual reality right now in which the kingdom exists. In fact, Romans 14, 17 gives us a, 
really a beautiful definition of the kingdom. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's, it's not physical. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So in that sense, it's, it's not physical, but he describes it in Romans 14, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so yes, there is a future 1,000 year reign likely coming where Christ will sit on his throne on earth. And yes, there is a very real spiritual reality of God's kingdom as he sovereignly rules the entire universe eternally. But also there is an intimate relationship that we have here and now with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ as we have fellowship in the Spirit of God and that is where we can experience His peace and joy, as Romans 14, 17 says. Now let me ask you this. What is a kingdom? Isn't a kingdom a group of people who are ruled by a king? <laughs> yeah. And when God delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son, did you not become a citizen of heaven as you became a child of the king? And does King Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne, even now rule your heart? And even though the world is under the sway of the wicked one and is in rebellion against the king, is he not still ruling and reigning? And someday soon will he not come and rule this earth and his kingdom will have no end? Beloved, we are servants in his kingdom. And isn't that exciting to know that we have been taken out of the jurisdiction of darkness, the domain of darkness, and placed into the kingdom of the beloved Son? And might I add, there's some tremendous responsibility connected with that, I think. That as a child in the kingdom, that we should be rightly representing the king, don't you think? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, I charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If God has called us into his own kingdom, shouldn't we represent the king in a manner worthy of God? I think so. We are members of the kingdom. And that simply means we have acknowledged the rule and the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Now, as we close, I just want to draw your attention to our final verse. Notice what it says in verse 14, which really sums it all up for us. How is all this possible? How is it that we could ever receive an inheritance? That we could ever be delivered? That we could ever be transferred into the kingdom of the Son? Only one way. Paul writes that God the Father transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The thing that stands between us and a holy God is sin, right? That's been the problem since Adam and Eve. And so before we could be fit for Christ's kingdom, we needed His redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. When God put Christ on the cross, His beloved Son, He bore our sin in His body on the tree. 
the wrath of God which was for us, he paid the penalty and God paid that price in order to redeem us back. And because of that, he could give us an inheritance. He could deliver us and transfer us into his kingdom. As I said at the beginning of this sermon, this, these verses are a model uh, or a pattern for our prayers. And I hope that you might get just a couple things out of it. Primarily would be to thank God for what he has done in your life through Christ. We should be a very thankful people. In fact, we should be the most thankful for if you understand your Bible correctly, we are the only ones who can thank God. Let me sum up this whole prayer in this way, looking back at verse 9. When you look and see all that God has done and consider what He has done in each one of your lives, we should never cease to give thanks to God. We should ask to be filled, verse 9, with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that, verse 10, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord so to please Him in all respects. Remember when we looked at that, in all respects of your life. Not just your life at church, your life at your job, but in all aspects of your life. At home, at work, in school, at the grocery store. And when we look back and we consider what God has done, how can we do any less than to praise and thank God? Well, that's the word of the Lord for today. If you are in need of prayers, you're welcome to come forward, or as Katie announced, you could stay after with Sister Elizabeth. And at this time, I want to invite you to please stand as we praise our Lord, the King of Kings. God bless.